Welcome to tonight's Tanya class, and as you all know, tonight is a very, very, very special night for each and every one of us, and for the whole community in Southwest Florida, because we are studying tonight the last chapter in Tanya. This has been a four, over four-year study session. We study a chapter a week, and we are holding by literally the last chapter. We're going to finish the book tonight, and it's really, really exciting and very, very special. Now, so we're going to stay focused on the class, because we want to learn a chapter, and afterwards we'll go into like a Fabrengan style, a little about mysticism and Tanya, depending on how much time allows and how you guys are holding with the spirit, which I'm sure it's going to be all great. Okay, so tonight, again, we learned there's five different sections to Tanya. This is the fifth section. In the fifth section, there's, there's nine chapters. So this is the ninth chapter in the fifth section, which is basically the last chapter of all the five sections of Tanya. Now, because it's the Bible of mysticism, so every single chapter has a theme, and really independent, even though everything is really connected. So the theme for tonight really is, and it's a really, really a tremendous gift, and it's, I'm happy you're all here, because you're going to walk away hopefully with a nice gift, and that is, the author speaks over here about in this chapter, amongst many things, but I think the theme and the takeaway message is, and I call it, the magical 24-hour silent meditation. Who loves meditation? Right? We all love meditation. There you go. So we're going to learn today about the weekly, the weekly 24-hour magical meditation. That's what we're going to learn about tonight. So the author begins a chapter and he says like this, that we know that it says in the Bible, which basically means that rebuke, you should rebuke your friend. Now every word in the Torah is very specific. So first of all, we're dealing with a friend. If someone's not your friend, so obviously don't rebuke him or her. It only applies to a true friend. If someone's not a true, true, true friend, there's no room for rebuking. It's actually going to cause problems. So if you want to follow the Torah, the Torah says, first of all, you got to make sure the person's a friend. Now, we don't only mean a friend you know, that you go out to lunch with, you go to Starbucks with, or someone that you just hang out with, but a true friend, someone, a sincere friend, someone, as we say, that you can think out loud in their presence, and you feel safe and they feel safe. So a true friend, um, or actually, more specifically, the commentaries say a friend that's a friend with you in Torah mitzvot, someone that studies with you, someone that's mitzvot with you, someone that you work on your love for God, and so on and so forth. So if that person's a friend, so the Torah says, hocheach teichiach, Rebuke, should you rebuke? And we all know the Torah is very specific. So it says a friend, which we already explained what that means, but then it says rebuke twice. Why twice? Once we'll do it, and then why a second? And then two, why stop at two? So actually the Talmud says that if the person's really a friend, you should rebuke him up to 100 times. Now obviously if it's, if it's not a friend, you're not going to get past the first or the second. Maybe the third, right? And you're out. But if it's a good friend, you know, because you're doing it out of love, and the person's going to want it, and the person's going to say, please, I'd love to hear more. So you can rebuke them up to 100 times. Now, obviously, we're dealing with over here, kind of, welcome, come have a seat. So we're dealing over here with the Alter Rebbe, who he considers every one of his disciples as a friend. Because it's not just a physical relationship, it actually it adds to it the fact that it's what? A spiritual relationship. So the author is obviously reaching out to his students, anybody who wants to be associated with Chabad, and he says like this, and he uses actually pretty, uh, hot, pretty intense emotional words, and he says as follows. And he says, and he says to his students, which is obviously hopefully including all of us, and he's pleading with us. He's pleading with us, Hi, welcome. Come have a seat. He's pleading with us to have pity. Pity is Rachmanut. We know that in the attributes of, uh, the, of the Sirot, you have Chesed, Gevura, Tiferes, but then you have Rachmanut. Rachmanut is a, a center Sfira, comes from Tiferes, where you have compassion. He's pleading with us, um, is pleading with us in a compassionate way that we should have pity on our souls. Why? Because the fact is God gave us a soul. And just like, for example, when a person physically needs to eat, if you don't eat, you're going to be hungry. If you don't drink, you're going to be thirsty. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're going to start, you're going to look for food, you're going to look for something to drink. That is your physical body. But your soul also needs to eat, also needs to drink. So the author is pleading with us to have pity on our souls 
and he addresses three areas. The three areas he addresses, we'll do one at a time. The first area he addresses is the idea of prayer. Now, why don't you address that idea of prayer first? He explains. Because we all want to have a relationship with God, and we know in the world of Kabbalah there's something which is called service, avodah. Avodah is the way we serve God, the way we have a connection with God, the way we relate to God. In, in Judaism, what is called serving God, not just serving on an external level, but serving God with your heart, because you can serve God with your physical body by doing physical mitzvot. Anytime you do a physical mitzvot, that's, a, that's serving God with your body. If you're studying Torah, then you're, you're serving God with your brain. So how do you serve God with your heart? Because our heart is really where it's at. The way we live is with our heart. So you want your heart to relate to Hashem. How does our heart serve God? And that happens what? Through prayer. So the service of the heart is called prayer. And since prayer is very, very important, Stantra was saying, hey guys, you got to have pity on yourself. You got to pray. Now, the Altar Abba obviously wants us to pray. He wants us to be successful in prayer. So he sets out, what, how, how should you pray? That you'll be successful in prayer. He says, first of all, we all know that there's personal prayer and there's communal prayer. Now, this personal prayer, which is great, but we know that communal prayer is much more powerful. That's the whole idea of a minion, at least a minion, when you pray in a community. And the author outlines how we should pray as a community. First of all, the author says that we should pray all together. Like when you're coming to shul, not this one holding this page, not holding that page, and this one thinking this. We should all pray together. We should all be holding the same page, the same prayer. We should all be saying it together. Focus. Focus together, exactly. Second thing is that when you pray, since prayer involves meditation, so you can't speed through it. So you have to say one word at a time. Say one word, think about, think, think about the word. And that's why it's important to know, in Hebrew it's called pirusha milot. You have to know what the words mean. Because if you don't know what it means, what are you thinking about? So you have to read it, you have to know what it means, and you have to meditate on what you're reading. Now we all know it says that one of the, thing, the hardest things to do is pray. Why is one of the hardest things to do to pray? Because what happens is like this. Action we can do and we cannot do. So you can sit still. Speech, you can talk, and you can be silent. We have the option. Our mind is working 24-7. <laughs> so you don't have an option to, to shut your mind down. I say, put it on pause. Hold on, put it on pause. Or go back and delete. The mind is working. It's 24-7, it's, it's open. So what happens is you're trying to pray, you're trying to focus, but the mind wanders. It wanders off. So one of the important things in prayer is to make sure, the doctor was saying, is not to dream. You can stop praying, and you're thinking about God, and all of a sudden you're thinking about, oh my gosh, I have to pick my kids up, or I have to go, well, when am I going here, I'm waiting for, whatever. We start thinking about it, it could be a million things, because the mind is always working. So to make it's sure true. not to dream during prayer. It's like you said, stay focused. Don't dream about this and the other thing. Stay focused on what you're praying and meditation and the connection to God. Um, that's another thing he gives. Another, another idea he says about prayer is not to speak. If you're in the middle of praying, all of a sudden you're having a conversation with someone else. I mean, people have conversations with themselves. That's another issue. But don't talk to yourself or don't talk to anyone else. Focus on what you're doing. Now, so those are four, four steps Alfred puts out. Number one is we should all pray together. Number two is say one word at a time. Number two is not to dream. And number three, number four is not to talk. No talking. Now, so the author addresses this issue. What's the problem? The problem is very simple. That when you pray together, there's a leader to the service. I don't want to use the word chazan. Chazan is a cantor. A cantor is someone that, you know, does cantorial stuff. I'm talking about a, a, um, um, a baltfila, in Hebrew it's called. Basically someone that leads the prayer service. Leading is different than a chazan. Someone that leads the prayer service. Now, so the problem is maybe there is, you don't have people to lead the prayer service in that fashion because the leader is not going to lead like that. How can anyone follow that way? So the Altruber says that he's going to create a solution. Guess what? A, he says, you're going to find capable people. There are people that are capable of leading a service. You've got to find them. Or what happens, you, don't, you have people that are capable, they want to do it. You know, they want, they, you know, it's hard to lead a prayer service, to lead it right. So he says, then if you have capable people and they don't want to do it, and you have several people, so you make a lottery. And each one will get his turn. It says you pray three times a day. So you make a lottery for who should run the prayer service. Now, the, and once you pick that person, the requirements of the one leading the service should be, so he says, number one is the person to say each word. Don't just run through it, say each word. 
Second thing is the person praying the service shouldn't be, and this is interesting, shouldn't be too slow or too quick. There should be a medium pace. Something which is, you know, medium, calming, soothing. Running is no good, and too slow is also no good. It should have medium pace, and the person leading the prayer service should say it out loud, say the words out loud. So three things the chazanah has to have. One is, again, he has to say each word. He has to say it in a medium pace, and also he should say it out loud. And then what happens when he leads the prayer service, the people should be sitting in close proximity. And when the people are sitting in close proximity, they should pray the same way also. Now, they should pray, in other words, say each word. They should pray in a medium pace. The only difference is they should pray in a drop lower voice in the chazan. You don't want the people following doing it the same voice or even higher because then no one's going to hear the chazan. Now, why is the author say this is so important? And he, fin- and he spells it out, black and white. He says, because unfortunately, all the problems and all the struggles and all the challenges and all the illnesses and all the downfalls that we have on any level, physical, spiritual, mental, financially, on all levels comes because we don't pray the way we're supposed to. And the author said, if we take upon ourselves and we pray the way we're supposed to, all our problems will go away. So think about that. Dedicate, how much time do you need to pray a day? Let's say an hour for chakras. Let's say 20 minutes for mincha. Let's say another 20 minutes for mayat. So we're talking, let's say other prayers, max, two hours a day of prayer service. That is 24 hours a day, not even 10%. You pray the way you're supposed to, guess what? Your whole day is going to be blessed. On all levels. At work, at home, with your friends, social life. Everything will be great. It's worthwhile investment. And then the author finishes off in this area of prayer, and he gives us a blessing. That sins, how do you pray? With your heart. So the heart has to be pure. So he gives us a blessing that God should purify our hearts to serve him in truth. Why? Because the fact is like this. How do we pray with our hearts? If our hearts are not pure, if they're dull, and if they're stubborn, you're not going to have to pray. So he gives us a blessing that what? That we should pray and we should have pure hearts, and we should serve God with, with truth, with emes. Yes, correct. Okay, so that is one area, the first area the altar addresses in this chapter, um, and that is prayer, which is very, very important. That's a big part of the Jewish life, is to be able to pray, and pray in a real way, and develop a, a, rela- a loving relationship with God with our heart. Then the altar goes over to another, another topic, and that is about the importance of Torah study. And the author says like this, that one of the biggest gifts God gave us is the Torah. Why? God's infinite. We are finite. How can a finite human being connect to the infinite? It's almost impossible. So God gave us a a medium that we can connect to him. How can we connect him? By studying Torah. Now, specifically, the author is talking now about studying the Talmud. Now, we know the Talmud is huge. It's 60 uh, the, uh, the 60 volumes in the, in the Talmud, and some of them are bigger, some of them are smaller, some have uh, just, just Mishnah, some Mishnah and Talmud, and so on and so forth. The author says that every single person should take upon himself to study a tractate of Talmud for the whole year. Now, what happens if you're part of a community, and if every person takes on one tractate, the whole community study the whole Talmud. Because when you're part of a community, if one person does and this one does, we take it all together collectively, guess what? As a community as a whole, we all study the Talmud. And therefore, he says it's important to study the Talmud as a community. Now, what happens if there's a huge community, there's hundreds of people, so everyone's going to add a page or two? He says, no. Do multiple um, uh, groups. This group will do it, the next group, and you can, have, you can finish, you know, if it's a big community, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people can, can finish the Talmud. Now, what happens if you're a small community, you don't have enough people to finish the whole Talmud, so then he says you should group together a bunch of small communities. But the point is that everyone should be part of some kind of cycle, that you have some kind of participation, that you're able to study the Talmud, one section, and therefore that group within one year should study the whole Talmud. As a matter of fact, up until today, every single year, which is actually this week, Chavdan the anniversary of the author is passing, they would divide, then people would take a section here, a section there, people would you know, participate in being able to study Talmud throughout the year. The author says that whoever studies Talmud, which hopefully is everybody, so at least once a week you should recite in Psalms. You know, with the book of Psalms from King David, there's 150 Psalms. The biggest Psalm is which one? Anyone know? The Lord is my shepherd. No, it's, a, it's one of the smallest, actually, but it's a good guess. It's a good guess. Oh, I thought you said most important. 
They're all important. The longest one, very good, is 119. The longest one is 119, uh, 119, Kofi Tess. In there, in there, in there, they have, for every one of the 22 alphabets, they have eight verses that start with that alphabet. So, for example, Aleph is the first alphabet. Mm-hmm. So there's eight verses that start with Aleph. Bez is the next alphabet. There's eight verses that start with Bez. So, so whoever studies Talmud says once a week, some people do it on Shabbos, some people do it during the week, whenever it is, once a week, read Psalm 119, not together, yourself. It's not, it's not a big, I mean, it's not that big. Well, chapter 119, that has eight verses, okay. So that is the second theme that he talks about in this chapter. The first we said was about prayer, and the second one was about Torah study. The third, the third, it gets now more exciting. The third thing Galtor says that it's important for, again, back to the original idea, is to have Rahmanut, compassion in our souls. Our souls need, uh, need, need, need uh, oxygen, our souls need water, our souls need nourishment. So the third thing he discusses is fasting. Fasting. Why? Because we know that, uh, you know, we, 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 since we're human, right? Are we human or not? Are we angels? Some of us are angels. Okay, fine. Present company excluded. Fine, I get it. But humans, humans, by definition, make mistakes. Angels don't make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. We're humans. Now, on the other hand, God made us human, but he also gave us an opportunity to fix the mistakes. It's not meant you ain't mistake, boom, it's over. You fast. There's fasting. And we remember we learned in, um, when, we, when we studied Egeret um, HaTshuva, the letters of repentance in chapter 3, they list over there the different amounts of fast depending on what you did wrong. You did this wrong, so many fasts, this wrong, so many fasts. So you can add up to all of a sudden you're doing a lot, a lot of fasting. You're probably you more fasting. You start to do that. <laughs> so then stop sinning. No, he's kidding. Um, Stop sinning. Fast. <laughs> there you go. So, you can, before you know it, you can be fasting almost every day of the year. Like one of the sins, what was it, 84 fasts? Oh, and before no. you know it, hello, you can be fasting double, triple fast a day. Right? You lose a lot of weight. Exactly. But you stop behaving also. Okay. Um, now, so, so the third thing the Altar says, guess what? Is fasting. Now, one of the things we know is the Altar is a holy man. And he has, he has Rahmanis on us. Just like he wants us to have Rahmanis on ourselves, he also has Rahmanis on us. Now, a, the art of a good rabbi is not someone, God forbid, that wants to punish you, or not somebody who wants to hurt you. The art of a good rabbi is someone that loves you, that wants the best for you, and wants to help you. So here is you see, and it's fascinating because it's the last chapter in Tanya, here is you see where the altar of a expresses his real love for us. Because the fact is, if you did something wrong, you got to fast. And the altar went through how many fasts and everything. And the altar says, guess what? I'm going to give you a loophole. A loophole. Another, what's the loophole? And he says like this. He says, since I know that people don't physically don't have the strength, like you said, it's, it's very hard to fast. People don't have the strength to fast. So he says, we can use the advice of the Talmud. He didn't make it up because he can't make things up. He says, he comes with a brilliant idea. He says, in Talmud, it says as follows. And I'll quote it in Hebrew and I'll translate it. Who wants to take a div and translate? Anybody? Okay. The Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> magic answer, right? God and good will always make the magic answer. Very good, very good. Okay, so the translation is like this. Whoever observes Shabbat according to its laws, are, you ready for this? are forgiven for all their sins. Wonderful. So the Alphabet says like this, the Talmud says, whoever observes Shabbat, according to its, all the laws, you're forgiven for all the sins. That's what it says in the Talmud. So the says, guess what? <laughs> the Alphabet says, one says, the Alphabet says very simple. Let's say you have all the, why are you, why are you fasting? Because you did this sin, that's and the other sin. And you have all these fasts you have to do. But what happens if I'm able to get you to for, God to forgive you for all the sins? You don't have to fast. Great. So you observe Shabbos. Kill you don't have to fast. You don't have to fast. I'm in. You're in. There you go. You like it. We, we all love it. Right? So the author says, guess what? You have to fast. Oh, solution. Rabbinical solution. Fa- observe Shabbos. Kill Chosai. 
according to Jewish law, and guess what? You don't have no sins. You're like totally white. Free. Totally free. All those fasts you have to do, oh, gone. Done, done, done. That sounds good. Okay, so now the author says, one second. Okay, so let's analyze it. What does the Talmud say? If you observe Shabbos, but it adds an extra word, kill chaser, according to Jewish law. And according to the laws of Shabbat. So therefore, so the first thing, you have to learn all the halachot. Because if you want to observe Shabbos, according to Jewish law, now you have to learn, have to learn halacha, how to observe Shabbat. Because if you're not going to learn, how are you going to, have to observe Shabbat? So the first thing, you have to take the Shulchan Aruch and the Talmud and the Mishnah, more important, the Shulchan Aruch, where they have in Kitzah Shulchan Aruch and the Altar Mishnah. You have to learn the Halacha and the Shabbat. And this way you'll know how to observe Shabbat. And because if you want to, again, the goal is you shouldn't have to fast. So how are you not going to fast? You have to get all your sins taken away. How are you going to get all your sins taken away? By observing Shabbat. How do you observe Shabbat? So you got to learn the Halachot. Now, <clears throat> so why do you have to learn Halacha? Because you have to know two things. You have to know what's forbidden. No, there's things which are forbidden. You're not allowed to do on Shabbat. You have to know what you need to do on Shabbat. And also, you have to know how to prepare yourself before Shabbos so you don't come to desecrate the Shabbos. Not to show up Shabbos. Oh, Shabbos is here. Hello, if you didn't prepare, how, how is it going to work? So you have to learn beforehand to know how to prepare that Shabbos should be successful. Like anything you do. It's all in the preparation. What's the yeah. expression? Mm -hmm. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Whoa. Plan to efficient. Right? Mm -hmm. So you got, you, got, you got to plan it out. Now, so let's, let's hold tight. So again, let's stay focused. So the author said again, the ish, third issue the author said was about fasting. The author said, how do you avoid fasting if God takes away your sins? How does he take away your sins if you observe Shabbat? So now, and the author says, learn halacha. But now the author comes along and puts down something very, very powerful in reference to how to keep Shabbat. And the author says like this, that on Shabbat, we should be careful not, and this is what we spoke at the beginning of the class, about the 24-hour silent meditation, that on Shabbat, we should not speak any unnecessary words on Shabbat, and the author says specifically, God forbid. This is very, this is, now we're entering a whole, this is we're entering the meditation zone. And pay attention because it's really powerful. Again, what's the author saying? On Shabbat, we should not speak any unnecessary words. Obviously, there are necessary words, fine. But anything which is unnecessary should not come out of your mouth on Shabbat. Should we stop practicing now? I might have to fast. <laughs> Good idea. So no, you couldn't even handle this for a second. <laughs> right? No speaking any unnecessary words on Shabbat. I'd be thrown out a long time ago. <laughs> You'd be fasting. <laughs> well, I don't need to. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> God forbid, God forbid, God forbid. It's funny, I, I just met someone this week actually that told me literally last week or two weeks ago they did a 24-hour non-speaking fast. They didn't talk a whole Shabbat. And they said it was phenomenal. And they didn't do it for religious reasons. They were doing meditation. They didn't even realize what it was. You know, the, the connection to the Shabbat. They happen to be Jewish, so I guess they were killing two birds with one stone. One stone, they didn't even know they were killing. Okay. Um, okay. So the first, again, so the author says again, let's stay focused. This is very, very important. Not to speak any unnecessary words on Shabbat. And the author says, God forbid. God, not, and this is, he's not saying this as, as like an extra. You want to observe Shabbat? So go learn the laws. Fine, you'll learn what to do, what not to do, how to prepare. I get it. And now he's spelling it out. He's spelling it out. What's he spelling out? Don't speak any unnecessary words on Shabbat. That is huge. Mm -hmm. Now the author is explaining where, where do we get that from? What is it based on? So the author goes on to say, he says, that it's known, and he uses the term, I'll say it in Hebrew, and I'll translate, le-yoidei chen. Le-yoidei means to those that know. Chen is a two-letter word, but actually it's an abbreviation. It stands for chachma nistara, the hidden 
the hidden wisdom, which is referring to Kabbalah and mysticism. So the author is going to tell is teaching us something which is known to what to the to the hidden to the hidden wisdom, and he explains like this. It's, no, it's known to those that know the hidden wisdom, which is Kabbalah, that every single mitzvah, every single mitzvah, and we know there's 630 commandments, 248 positive, 365 negative, every one of these mitzvot have, I'll say it in Hebrew and I'll translate it, something which is called pnimiyot of the mitzvah and chitzoniyot of the mitzvah. What is, the, what is pnimiyot and what is chitzoniyot? So there's something which is the physical component, and the spiritual component. So in other words, every single one of the 613 commandments, whether it's from the 248 positive or the 365 negative, there's the physical component to the mitzvah, whether it's do or don't do, whatever the physical component, but then there's the spiritual component. So now, we're going to talk now specifically about Shabbat. So in other words, Shabbat is like this. What does Shabbos mean? Resting. Shabbos comes from the word Shavas. Shavas means to rest. To rest yeah. What happened when Hashem created the world? So for six days He created the world, and on the seventh day of crea- seventh day of creation, Hashem was Shavas. Hashem rested. So again, Hashem physically worked. However, we understand work for God. He was creating, and the seventh day He did nothing. He rested. Therefore, the Torah says. Six days we are obligated to work, productive and make things happen, and the seventh day we're supposed to rest. So therefore, Hashem rested on the, on the seventh day, and we're supposed to rest. So the chitzonius, the physical component of Shabbos is resting. Physical relaxation. Just like Hashem rested. Now, so that is the chitzonius of Shabbos. What is the premius of Shabbos? What is the internal part of Shabbat? And what is, what is the spiritual part of Shabbat? The spiritual component of Shabbos is when we pray and we study Torah, not for any other reason other than to cleave to Hashem. You could, people study Torah, they want to understand, and they want to you know, give a class, and they want to become famous, and so on and so forth, for people have a job, whatever it may be. But the panemius of Shabbat is, I want to study, you study Torah, you pray, and the reason why I'm studying and praying is because I want to cleave to Hashem. And we all know the verse says in the Torah, and this is very fascinating. What does it say in the Torah? It says, Shabbos, L'Hashem Elokecha, which means Shabbos to your God. That's the little translation. So Kabbalah translates that Shabbos, you want to observe Shabbos. You have to observe Shabbos in a way that your whole Shabbos comes that you become La Hashem Elokechi, become closer to Hashem. So the way you're observing Shabbos is by becoming closer to Hashem. And you're reconnecting to Hashem. So that is what the premise of Shabbos. Now we know Shabbat, there's two commandments in reference to Shabbos. One is Zachar, which means to remember the day of Shabbos. Now, Zachar is the positive commandment of Zachar, to remember. That the way we observe Shabbat, what does Zachar mean? To remember. So what's the premise of Shabbos, we said? It's to study Torah and to pray in order to cleave to Hashem. So that satisfies the premise, the internal part of cleaving to Hashem. Now, but there's also a command we know in reference to Shabbat, Shomer. A Shomer means to observe literally means to watch. It means to observe the, the Shabbat. <clears throat> so how, what is Shomer? What's, the, what's the, the spiritual part of Shomer? So the author explains the very simple. In other words, the Shomer of Shabbos is not speaking. The Zohar of Shabbos is studying Torah, praying to cleave to Hashem. That's the Zohar. You're remembering. You're getting closer to Hashem. Shomer is... On a spiritual level, not doing and not speaking, more important, not speaking, anything unnecessary. In other words, what's the chitzonius of Shomer? No work. You're not doing any work. Hashem didn't work, you don't work. But what's the premius? Not no work. It's not saying anything unnecessary. 
And um, the Altar finishes off the chapter, and this is very profound, because it was, it's not just the end of this chapter, it's the end of the whole Tanya. And the Altar finishes off the chapter, and he brings a famous quote from King Solomon. We know King Solomon wrote many books, and one of his most powerful books is Exiliastes. Uh, uh, and the author, and the, the, he quotes the verse, the verse says over there as follows. Ze, I'll say it in Hebrew, I'll translate it. Ze, l'uma ze, <coughs> which means that Hashem made one opposite the other. In other words, like this. Hashem created ze, l'uma ze. There's always a counterpart. In other words, there's two ways to, cl- to come close to Hashem and Shabbat. One way is the proactive, which is the positive energy by praying and studying Torah. And the praying and the study Torah does what? Gets you to cleave to Hashem. That's the proactive. What's the way of Shomer, the opposite side, is what? Is by doing nothing. Not speaking any extra words. And when we take 24 hours and the only thing we do is pray what we're supposed to with the goal of cleaving to Hashem and study Torah with the goal of cleaving to Hashem, studying coming from inside or discussing the parsha or whatever it may be, and not speaking anything that's not necessary, we will be then experiencing Shabbos in a real way. And we experience Shabbos in a real way, that will allow us the gift that God says He's going to forgive us from all our sins. We're not going to have sins. We're not going to have to fast. So in this chapter, the author outlines three ways, important ways, that we need to work on ourselves. One is to become closer to God. One is we start off by prayer, to pray, to pray with the community, and to pray properly. Second is to study, study Talmud, and once a week uh, read Psalm 119. And then fasting, but again, right away he says, you don't have to fast. Just get God to forgive you all the sins. Go for the, go for the lottery, winning lottery ticket. How? By observing Shabbat. So he says two parts. One is you have to learn the halacha to know how to observe Shabbat. But then he says, there's the physical, there's the physical, the chitzonis of Shabbat. We don't do work and we uh, do different prayers and so on and so forth. But then there's the spiritual part of Shabbat, which is by prayer and Torah study, with the goal is to cleave to Hashem, but also as well to spend 24 hours not speaking unless it's necessary. Now, what's just interesting is that um, this verse that the author quotes from King Solomon, so it's a very powerful verse, and the verse says like this. The verse says that when life is great, you feel blessed, you feel happy, everything's going your way, so what should you do? You should be grateful. Whatever's going great in your life, physically, spiritually, and mentally, emotionally, be grateful. Wow. This is, look what's going on. I mean, blessed with this and great with that and the family, the community, everything, whatever, all my areas of life, I'm, I'm blessed for. Now, what happens when you don't see the light? Or unfortunately, sometimes you see the darkness. So what does King Solomon say? He says, just stop and look. Look. What do you mean look? You don't see what it is. But trust me, if it's from Hashem, it's good. Wait. It might take a day, a week, a month, a year. Who knows how long it will take. Maybe you'll never see it. But just know it's coming from Hashem. It's all good. And over there, that's where he says, everything is from Hashem. When you see it's good, it's from Hashem. When you think it's not good, it's also from Hashem. Everything comes from Hashem. And when, what happens when you realize that everything comes from Hashem and everything comes from the loving Hashem, then life is really, really great. So in other words, when life is great, so then you're grateful to Hashem. You make blessings, you thank God. What happens when you don't see how great it is? So you're not going to be grateful for that. I mean, you could be. So what is King Solomon saying? Be quiet. Just like Shabbat. In other words, there's the part that we praise God, and the part we do nothing. We're quiet. And that's where the power of silence comes in. The power in silence is when there's, when there's a struggle, you stop, you don't say anything, you take it in, and guess what happens? You connect to the deeper part of Hashem. Because speech is limiting. 
Non, non-speech is infinite. And that's really the real power. The real power is in the silence. And again, as King Solomon said, Zelu Mazed, they're both important. There's the component when we're grateful, and there's the component when we're quiet. Just like in Shabbat, when we pray and we study and we're cleaving to God, and then there's a time that what? That we sit back and we just take it all in. So I think this chapter has a very, very practical and important and a profound lesson. And that is, Hashem loves us. Hashem wants the best for us. We have ways to connect in many ways. If you like praying, you can strengthen your prayer service to Hashem, the service of the heart. If you're more of an intellect, now obviously you can study a lot of Torah. It's another way to connect to Hashem. If you're a doer, so you can prepare a beautiful Shabbos. And then on Shabbos, if you really want to connect to Hashem in a very powerful way, you have the opportunity to do both. You prepare a beautiful Shabbos, Torah thoughts, prayer, but also, more importantly, the gift of silence. And I think the gift of silence is really, really a tremendous gift because it allows you really to connect to the infinite Hashem in an unlimited fashion. Because in words, they're limiting. So it's only going to take you so far. On the other hand, without words, the sky's the limit. So Baruch Hashem, I think it's huge, huge, huge that we finished the, the Tanya, the last chapter. It's a tremendous celebration. And um, actually, there's no words to describe it. It's by divine providence. This week is the anniversary of the altar's passing. And we actually finished the Tanya here in Fort Myers. We went to the whole five sections, huge book. Mm-hmm. It's a tremendous, tremendous uh, blessing, a tremendous blessing uh, to be able to finish this. And we all know in Judaism, in Judaism, is one of the rules is Torah never ends. It doesn't mean you finished. You finished. There's no finishing. You finish, and you might you start something new. So we're going to have a discussion in the community here what we should start the next thing. But just so that we shouldn't finish without starting something. So I just want to talk about a short idea about um, mysticism in general. This is in general, and that is one, one small idea that we know that the Alter Rebbe, um, he, uh, he unfortunately passed away while he was running away. It's a long story, I'm not going to go into the whole long, long length of the story, but just an interesting point. He was running away from Napoleon. Uh, because there was in in Alter very very much wanted there was a big debate between all the rabbis who they wanted to win the war, you know Russia, or Napoleon, and uh, most of the rabbis actually wanted Napoleon to win because they felt like financially much better for the Jewish people, and Alter agreed, but he felt like that spiritually it would be terrible for the Jewish people. So he very very much wanted that Russia should win because even though it would be hard, you know financially and other levels, but he felt sp- spiritually better for the Jewish people. So he prayed for Russia to win. And because of that, when Napoleon came into Russia, the Alterbe had to run away for his, for his life. And he ran from town to town, and then at one point, it was, you know, it was, it was, it's not easy, it's in Russia. Those days, it wasn't like there was air-conditioned cars, air-conditioned, I mean, well, he heated cars and trains. You know, he was, he was running around in, 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 in the winter, and it was very, very cold. And unfortunately, at some point, he became very, very ill, and he passed away. Wow. But I read a very, very powerful story. I just want to finish off with the story, because I think it's important to finish off with the story, and, uh, and one thought. And the, author, and the story goes like this, that when the author was uh, in his last place where he was, he was in a, a kfar, like an inn, called Piena. And some, someone put him up in a cottage. Listen, it, was, it wasn't Jewish, the guy, but he saw a holy man, and he put him, he gave him a cottage to live in, and he stayed there. And then what happened was when the author was getting... Um, Towards the end of life, he saw that you know his, his time was up, so um, the this person that hosted him asked him for a blessing. He wasn't Jewish. He asked him, you know, could you give me a blessing? Who who would want a blessing from a holy person? So the altar was said to him. He gave him a blessing, gave him a big blessing, and he told him he told him like this that um, which is an interesting blessing. He gave him a blessing, but he told him that when a Jew comes through and doesn't behave the way he's supposed to, you'll know what to do with him. And that was it. <laughs> Short while later, the altar passed away, and he was buried a little, uh, in the next closest cemetery in Hadditch, which actually, we did the, uh, f- the completion of the previous section, the fourth section in Hadditch, which was very, very moving, very powerful. And 
after the altar passed away, many years later, this person that got the blessing from the altar, he, this cottage the altar stayed in was very, very special to him because a holy man stayed there. So he wouldn't let anyone stay there. If a Jew came by and he felt the person was like holy, he would let him stay in the cottage. Otherwise, he wouldn't really let anyone stay there. Now, this is 10 years later. Uh, and he had like a little inn. So uh, two Jews came by. And, you know, he asked them, can I help you or anything? They said, uh, you know, yeah, sure, they want me to see you. And he had, like, special kosher dishes and kosher food. And he said, you know, you want me to get you kosher? And they go, no, we don't care about kosher. Now, he's like, saying, what do you mean? You look like Jews. You dress like Jews. What do you mean, on the road because no one sees? What do you, mean? you don't care about kosher? And a flash went off in his head. What the altar had told him. When you see a Jew that's not behaving like a Jew, you'll know what to do with him. So he right away said, oh, this must be my calling. <laughs> so he went out, and he called the guys towards the cottage of the Alter Rebbe, and he said, and he pulled out a big axe. Pulled out a big axe, and he said, listen, that is the cottage where the Alter Rebbe stayed here, and I, I suggest to you that you guys go do your last prayers because your life is over. <laughs> and two, you know, what are you going to do? It's not like, you know, uh, what, what do they have? I mean, these are two, they have no protection or anything. So they, they said, okay, sure. And they went and they realized, oh my gosh. And they started to do real tshuva. They started to really, really weep. Oh my gosh, what are we doing? We're like, it's because we're on the road. We can just ignore, you know, our Jewish faith and everything. And they like, they were like, really, really sincerely repented. And then he walked in and he saw there was like a change of heart, a real change. You can tell when someone is transformed. And um, he said to them, okay, I guess uh, your repentance is accepted. Now go to the Alter Rebbe and pray in his grave and life will be good. And then obviously he, they came and he fed them kosher food and so on and so forth. And I think the story has many messages. I'm sure you can all come with the whole message you want. But I think that the, 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 the many messages, one message is that if you're, if, you have, if you're a Jew and you have a certain set of values and rules, you know, people respect you not when you desecrate them. People respect you when you honor your rules. This man wasn't Jewish, but he, he, why he respects someone doesn't respect their own rules. So he was, able to, he was able to respect someone that respects their own rules. He respected the author because he saw a holy, godly man. And then when you saw people not behaving in a godly way, hello, this is not a way to behave, but here you see the power of tshuva. That someone, someone could do something terrible. Look, the guy was going to kill him, but they did real tshuva, the guy forgave him. But I think on a, on a more of a spiritual level I want to talk about is, we know the Alta Rebbe taught us, this is part of the Fabringa part, the guys that ran away missing the Fabringa, but all right, that's fine, they're lost. I'll have to watch it on the video. See, yeah. Um, you'll tell them the story. Yes, I will. And no pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. So one of, one of the, one of the, the author Rebbe came into the world, and we know he transformed the world in a huge way, in a huge way. And the author taught many, many powerful teachings. Now one of the most, I mean, he teaches many, we're going to talk about a few, we'll see how much time permits. One of the teachings he taught us was that we know the world is light, and there's darkness. Some places lighter, some places darker. Now, light and darkness, there's physical light and darkness, there's spiritual light and darkness, there's emotional light and darkness. You know, I'm in the light, I'm in the dark. I mean, it depends what you're referring to. It could be in any area of your life that you're going through. Now, what happens is, you really want to be in the light. You want clarity, you want focus, you want honesty, you want love. I mean, these are all levels of light, where it's high, you see it, it's open, energy is flowing. Darkness is not a place you want to be. But the fact is, we're human. So sometimes we have light, some darkness. One of the teachings out of taught is, a lot of people, when they confront light and darkness, they're busy a whole day, or they put a lot of energy in getting rid of the darkness. Don't do this and don't do that. And I'm not saying it's not correct. The author came and he revolutionized the way you deal with darkness. And what he said was, yeah, the truth is, for example, if you have a room that's dirty, and you want, and it's dirty, and it's decrepit, and old furniture, and it's broken, and smelly. So the proper procedure, what do you do? Take all the junky furniture out, clean the place down, you sanitize the place, ah, fresh and clean, now you bring in the new furniture, the new, uh, whatever you want to bring in there. That's the general way of doing things. 
And that's why, generally speaking, people have a struggle. They're in the dark. Get rid of the dark. I can't handle these negative stuff. And the altar says, no, no, no. Let's change things around. Let's do things a little differently. And what do you say? Start bringing in the light, and eventually the darkness will go away. Because sometimes you're so busy with the darkness, you never get to the light. So the same example would be, in a dark room, I get it's dirty and everything. You know what? Guess what? It's a big job. Let's start bringing in some light, some new furniture, some new things. We'll keep it. No one's going to make it dirty, right? And then slowly, you'll, you'll be easier to get out the stuff because you see the light. Sometimes, if you don't see the light, you can't get ahead of yourself. And that's one of the most powerful teachings out there. Is focus on the light. Focus on things that you could do. Focus on the talents that you do have. Don't focus, oh my gosh, I missed that. You know, like sometimes you have a beautiful picture and it can be worth who knows what. And Nebuch, there's a small black dot there. What do people right away notice? The dot. The dot. Hello, 99% of the picture is gorgeous. What do most people see to see the dot? And literally it'll drive them crazy. <laughs> Versus you have 99% that you can focus on beauty. No, I have to, right? So the doctor became said, no, stop. Let's do it the opposite. Focus on the good part. Whether it's dear or not, it's irrelevant. Focus on the light, and eventually the darkness will go away. And I think it's really, really a, an important lesson in life. Let's focus on the, on the light. Because when you focus on the light, guess what? You don't have to run away, because you find the light. Most, a lot of people, unfortunately, it's like the glass is half full and half empty. When a glass is half full and half empty, which one is true? It's half full or half empty? Both. They're both. both. So how come some people are focusing on the half full and half empty? So that could be, again, it could be many reasons. It could be you were born that way. It could be you were trained that way. I don't know. It could be many reasons. But it's irrelevant why. Some people just see the half empty. And they can't get ahead of themselves. Some people see half full and, and guess what? They enjoy the half full. And they'll worry about later how to fill the other half up. Now, I guess it's not easy, it's easier said than done. But the point is, the author gave us a path. Focus on the light. Focus on the light. So that's one powerful teaching. And since, um, you know, again, we don't want to finish, we want to, like, start. So we'll decide what we're going to start. But I just want to share an important idea from the beginning of the book of Tanya. From the beginning of the book of Tanya. Let's start over. We're starting, we're always starting over. Life is a circle. But I just want to share one important revolutionary idea from the beginning of important Tanya, which is really, really, very helpful. And that's as follows. The author explains the beginning in Tanya. This is also part of the Fabrangian part. These guys are missing. Right. Um, you'll tell them. Okay. The author says in the beginning of Tanya like this, that Hashem gave us a mind and he gave us a heart. Now, Hashem also gave us a godly soul and Hashem gave us an animal soul. And we need both. We need our mind, we need our heart, we need our godly soul, our animal soul. Where is the lounge? Where does the hangout where the godly soul hangs out? Anybody know? In the mind lounge. The godly soul hangs out in the mind. Where does the animal soul hang out? With the animals. In the heart. With the other animal souls in the heart, yes. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that the godly soul doesn't visit the, the, the heart. It doesn't mean that the animal soul doesn't try to creep into the mind. Now, so what happens is like this. The mind tells us what's right and what's wrong. And it's 100% objective. We all know, if, if you ask yourself, it's easy to ask someone, ask yourself, you ask yourself, you know, let's get the emotions out. What is the right thing to do? If you have clarity of your mind, without getting emotionally excited, if you're able to say, let me stop and think, what is the right thing to do? I can guarantee you, every one of us will, tell, will say the right, the right thing to do. Because our mind knows one plus one is two. Your heart can feel like, no, 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 today let's make one plus one 23. And we do it a lot with our heart. But our mind knows one plus one is two, and that will never change. In your heart, what number do you want to be, right? And that's the number you get. But our mind knows the truth. The same thing also, our godly soul knows what, God, what Hashem wants. So the mind is objective. The heart, on the other hand, wants to have a great life. And we should have a great life. What happens, the mind will tell you, yeah, you want a great life? So do this. Live this life. It'll be great. The heart will say, like, right now, I want to have fun. So in Tanya, it says ba the basic argument between right and wrong, between the godly soul and the animal soul, is always going to be right or wrong versus good time, bad time. Now what happens like this, 
Let's say you're struggling. You know what the right thing to do is. We all know whatever you, whatever the subject, we know what the right thing to do is. But then we're struggling, we want to do this, we want to do that. So how do you have the strength to overcome the struggle? So it's 50-50, who's going to win? And one of the powerful teachings the Altar teaches us is, there's something which is called Moyach Shalit Al-Halev. That the intellect has more power over the heart. The intellect has more power over the heart in its nature. That means that if, if there's a struggle between doing right and wrong, and the animal soul just wants to do what makes feel good and right now, <laughs> if you're persistent, the intellect has edge over. In other words, the godly soul has the edge over. The godly soul has the edge over. And because the godly soul has the edge over, you will eventually do what the godly soul wants. And just to finish off, that, you know, we know that we're getting ready now, we're, before this Shabbat is going to be Shabbos and Baruchim, the month of Shabbat, yes. and in Yud Shabbat is the, the, uh, the day that the previous Rebbe passed away, and the Rebbe took over leadership. And it's 70 years ago when the Rebbe became the Rebbe, Tavshin Yud. And now it's Tavshin Pei, so 70 years. And one of the main themes that the Rebbe taught which is all based, obviously, from the altar, it's all connected, is that God wanted to make a dwelling place in this world. Meaning to say is, it's not enough to meditate and to do, like, you know, uh, spiritual stuff. It's important to do physical mitzvot. It's important to be spiritually grounded. That means that we have to do physical mitzvot. It means it's not enough just to love being Jewish, which is great, but we also have to translate into actions. So if it's for a man to put on tefillin, the lady to light Shabbos candles and to keep kosher, all the practical laws, why? Because when you do the physical mitzvot, you're literally bringing God into the physical world. And the goal is to bring God down into this physical world. And that's another beautiful teaching and gift of Judaism, mysticism, is to be able to bring God down into this world. Anyways, I'm really, really blessed and grateful that we worked from finished the whole book of Tanya here, and God willing, will continue to grow. And most importantly, like we just said, it should have a real effect on us in a great way. It should uh, hopefully affect us in a, in a meaningful way. It should show in our prayers, in our Torah study, in our mitzvot, in our excitement, our love for God, our love for people, our love for helping people. And we should all be conduits for great and powerful things. I just want to say that I remember four years ago I said to the rabbi, Rabbi, you got a minute? Let's do some Tanya. Four years later, we're done. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Th